Okay, comrades, it's uh, five o'clock on Sunday. Big match later, but um, that's eight o'clock. And this is an online communist forum with uh, Labour Party Marxists and CPGB jointly organising. And we've got Jack Conrad for the Provisional Central Committee, CPGB, talking about a week in politics. Jack. Okay, thanks, uh, Stan. Right. Um, well, I'm going to begin as it uh, says on the on the tin with uh, COVID-19. I have to say that uh, when we were originally um, just doing the weekly worker, um, I mean, I, I actually took the decision to uh, advertise this week with um, some sort of COVID uh, picture simply to avoid uh, yet another picture in the paper of uh, George Galloway and um, Batley and Spen and all the rest of it. And I thought, well, there must be something coming up on uh, COVID-19. And of course, there is in a very grisly uh, way, as you might expect. Um, I think it's worthwhile just uh, prefacing what I'm just about to say by, you know, casting our minds back to the beginning of this uh, pandemic. Uh, we had, you know, the slow start in China of recognising that something was uh, wrong in Wunan, uh, but then we had, and this is the real uh, divide, I think, that in the United States and in Britain, uh, but also, of course, with Belisano in uh, Brazil and other such politicians, is the playing down uh, of COVID-19, um, that this is nothing but uh, the flu, um, nothing to fear, nothing to worry about, um, and the results show. And um, yeah, this week we had uh, the horrible announcement that at least, at least 4 million people have died since the beginning of this pandemic. And, and I say the word at least because it's clearly uh, an under uh, estimate. And what's worrying, not that we wanna get doom and gloomy about it, What's worrying, of course, is that the rate of death, as you would expect in a pandemic, um, um, increases sharply. So the statistics are uh, that the million mark, uh, the million, the first million deaths took nine months uh, from the um, start of the pandemic. A million people died within nine months. To get to two million, it was only... 3.5 months after that, so a doubling. Uh, to get to 3 million, it took another three months after that. And to get to 4 million, the figure that we now have, took 2.5 uh, uh, months. So we see uh, a sharp rise um, and we should expect um, uh, that to uh, continue. I mean, that is, is as simple as that. Uh, there's nothing that's going to stop uh, that rise, at least in the um, short uh, to medium term. Okay, um, who's died where? Um, again, I think the, um, the figures are revealing. Uh, at the top, at, you know, of the league table of death, is the United States with um, 606 
100,000 deaths. Brazil, uh, which is uh, in line to actually overtake uh, the United States, we have a total death rate of 528,500, followed by India on 405, um, um, 100,000. Okay, now, of course, what we need to say about um, these countries is that um, in the case of uh, India, you're dealing with an awful lot of people. On the other hand, in India, they readily admit it, uh, that this is a severe underestimate uh, of the total that have died. Um, okay, and then we get into um, death rate. Uh, after all, the United States has got a big population. Brazil has got a big population, not the same size as the United States. And as I said, uh, India uh, is at the sort of level of population uh, that we have in China. Okay, death rate. Now, this one matters uh, because clearly, you know, if you've got a billion people, um, um, uh, it, you know, it doesn't take um, that many <laughs> deaths per 100,000. Uh, to put you up there at the top of the league table. So death rate uh, is what really uh, matters in terms of actually judging um, a country's performance in dealing uh, with this horrible uh, virus. So when it comes to uh, per capita, i.e. the death rate, um, what we have, and, and these figures are very difficult uh, to, you know, how should it rely on in any exact way. But nonetheless, here we are. At the top is Paraguay. Uh, next, we have Uruguay. Then we have Peru, followed by Hungary, Bosnia, the Czech Republic, Gibraltar, and then Brazil. So although Brazil is a horror story, uh, there are other uh, horror stories that are worse. And of course, and I, I haven't even bothered uh, uh, to go and uh, look for it simply because I, I know that if you look down uh, not just the total deaths uh, but death rate, China will be way, way, way down um, uh, towards the bottom. That's in spite uh, of uh, this virus breaking out uh, in terms of uh, infecting human beings. We think it's... Uh, uh, um, uh, breaking out in China first. Uh, I've already referred to the delay uh, before they took action, but when they took action, uh, it was action that was effective. Uh, it stopped the spread uh, of the disease and they've been successful uh, in preventing uh, a wave after wave after wave. And that's to do with lockdown um, primarily. Of course, what we are dealing with now is a race uh, between vaccination um, and uh, this uh, virus and the mutation um, of this uh, virus. So the good, the good news uh, for those of us that live in the UK is there have been 80 million um, uh, jabs uh, delivered, um, which is a tremendous uh, achievement. And just to make the point again, uh, that what we're dealing with here is the organization that's provided by the state uh, acting effectively, uh, not the workings of the private 
market. So there's not only, I think, a divide internationally uh, between those countries that have handled uh, this uh, uh, virus terribly, and I include the United States and obviously Brazil and India um, in that category, but there's also a, a dividing line ideologically, um, you know, in, in terms of those that uh, adhere to uh, the idea that the market is the most effective mechanism that humanity has ever developed and those that uh, disagree uh, with that. And all you need to see is when it matters, for example, in a war or when it matters in terms of a pandemic, um, what we see is state action. Uh, you don't see uh, it privatized out and, uh, um, you know, let, let money and the law of value uh, decide these things. Now, in terms of this 80 million uh, uh, vaccinations uh, in Britain, if you look at uh, uh, a world ranking, uh, Britain is up there at the top uh, with um, Israel. Um, it doesn't mean that you're completely there. And then we get into, you know, should children uh, be vaccinated and uh, other such uh, questions. Nonetheless, the vaccination program has been very effective. Uh, and you've got well over uh, one vaccination per head of the population. That doesn't mean everyone's been vaccinated. After all, uh, we are recommended uh, to have two uh, jabs and there's talk of uh, a booster jab uh, maybe um, in the autumn uh, going on uh, to winter. But if we then compare that figure uh, in Britain and Israel, which are the, uh, you know, the best performing countries when it comes to vaccination, with the global picture, uh, we have a horrible figure, and that is only 20.9% of the global population have received one, um, at least one uh, um, uh, jab. Um, and of course, what we're dealing with here is a virus uh, that mutates. I don't know what number we're on. I mean, is it uh, alpha, delta, four? Uh, of course, there's been many other uh, uh, variations, but it's the delta, the Indian variety, uh, that at the moment is the dominant uh, strain. And precisely uh, what we have, therefore, amongst 80% of the world's population, and that will tend to be amongst poorer uh, uh, countries, you have the chance for this uh, uh, virus to mutate and uh, uh, you know, come back uh, and get us. Now, we don't know, um, you know how well all these vaccines will do in terms of how long they're going to last. And we don't know how effective they're going to be against new uh, variants. All we can say is at the moment, the evidence tends to show uh, that they are uh, effective. I mean, we can't guarantee that, but that's what the evidence uh, shows. And so, of course, the other uh, significant date here, or, or the significant fact here, is, of course, the, um, the Tory government, Boris Johnson's government, is uh, declaring Freedom Day um, on the 19th, and um, is basically removing all legal restrictions. Now, of course, there's been a blowback uh, against that announcement, not least by um, um, scientists and doctors. So, for example, in The Lancet, which is the journal of the uh, British Medical um, Association, 
we've got a, a joint letter by 122 doctors and scientists saying that this is premature, this is dangerous, this is, this is probably risky. And I think it's for those sorts of reasons, as well as that resonating amongst the wider population, uh, that the government has at least backtracked in part um, over the sort of um, symbolism uh, of wearing masks. It's, it's not going to be compulsory, but it's going to be advisory and uh, how that actually works out on public transport and uh, in crowded places, I don't know. But I think that this is part of um, uh, the pushback against what was planned to be freedom uh, uh, day. And of course, Boris Johnson has himself been under pressure, not only from scientists, but from so-called libertarian uh, Tory MPs who do worship uh, the market, who, who do not have uh, a sense of collectivity, uh, but um, uh, elevate the individual and in, in, an individual whim uh, above uh, collective um, um, interests. Okay, so uh, as I said, we've, we've got this race uh, between vaccination um, on the one side and uh, uh, the, this uh, latest Delta variant uh, on the other. And uh, this is what's amazing about the um, Freedom Day uh, announcement is that we're dealing with a situation, not that they've got um, the Delta variant under control uh, and uh, cases are being reduced, uh, quite the opposite. What we've got is an explosion uh, of infections and an increase uh, in the number of deaths. And as a result of that, we're getting reports even now of various hospitals cancelling uh, operations and warning uh, that the NHS faces a summer uh, that's equivalent to the NHS's um, you know, strained um, circumstances uh, in midwinter. Uh, when traditionally we get the flu and uh, uh, other such uh, uh, diseases. So the expectation is uh, that deaths uh, will go up to something like 3,000 a week with 100,000 uh, infections. I mean, maybe that's a worst case uh, scenario, uh, but that's quite uh, possible. Okay, uh, another question that needs to be um, added to the sort of laissez-faire, you know, let this disease rip um, approach um, is this uh, mysterious uh, long COVID uh, question. Um, at the moment, uh, we don't know exactly how long long COVID lasts. We know that some people, you know, who've had uh, long COVID, you know, shortage of breath, clouded brain and uh, all the rest of the symptoms, sometimes after you know, several months uh, people have uh, recovered, but we also know uh, that people who got COVID at the beginning um, of this pandemic have still got COVID and the rates seem to be, you know, something like 10 to 20% uh, of those that uh, get COVID have some sort of um, long COVID. Now, maybe we need another word for this. Maybe we need short long COVID and medium long COVID, but there's definitely also long, long uh, uh, COVID. And we know that from um, other, um, um, you know, um, 
um, situations where people find it very difficult to recover from a virus that this can go on uh, for years. So in terms of its uh, effect on the economy, uh, this is another um, aspect that needs to be considered as well as of course, uh, the health uh, of those that have, those that have gone down uh, with this horrible um, uh, virus. Okay, meanwhile, and I've just looked this one up, uh, having been delayed, I think Sir Richard, Sir Richard Branson is up there somewhere, or maybe he's back down in New Mexico, but uh, his uh, plane uh, carrying his um, Virgin Unity uh, capsule uh, took off uh, from New Mexico. And you all know uh, the, the idea, um, you're carried up by a plane similar uh, to the old um, United States shuttle. Uh, you're taken up by another plane and then you're released and you use the, the rocket uh, engines uh, of your shuttle or your capsule uh, to boost you uh, out there into space. But except uh, that with Richard Branson, what you're doing is only touching the edge uh, of space, depending on how you define where space begins. It has various definitions. Some put it at 50 miles, some put it at 60. Either way, uh, his uh, capsule is designed to go between 55 miles up uh, to 66 miles up. So he's going to be just on the edge of space. Apparently, at that level, you will feel uh, weightlessness. It will be uh, free. Uh, from the immediate effects of uh, um, at the Earth's uh, gravity. Uh, now, according to Sir Richard Branson, he's been working on this uh, project for years and years. He first started working on it when the Americans started to run down uh, their space program. Uh, you know, the Soviet Union had gone, the space race was over. Um, you know, instead of having uh, a, a glorious future of um, uh, space exploration and where, you know, humanity's uh, destiny supposedly uh, lay, uh, things became much more earthbound, much to his disappointment, hence his uh, project and him spending. So he says uh, one billion pounds um, um, on uh, this project. Now, to me, it, it's quite a weird um, uh, concept. Uh, it, it does strike me as a capitalist um, decadence, you know, at, at the level of, um, you know, Roman senators and Roman emperors uh, getting hold of pearls and dissolving them in wine um, in order to, um, you know, display how much wealth uh, that they, they, they've got. Uh, it does strike me as a vanity uh, project. Uh, it doesn't strike me as hey, this is the next uh, step uh, for humanity when it comes to putting, you know, satellites up there or getting uh, people up there to go to the International Space Station, uh, let alone to Mars or, or even the moon. As I said, you know, the limit of this technology is um, just, just uh, uh, touching what is technically defined as outer uh, space. And uh, what you have is this supposed uh, space race between, on the one side, Richard Branson, and on the other, uh, Jeff Bezos. Um, who's going to be up there first? Well, it's clearly now uh, Richard Branson. And, and you have quite childish boasting. I mean, to me, like weird stuff. 
you know, who's got the biggest windows? Well, apparently it's uh, Vsauce's um, blue, blue, is it blue? Horizon Blue, anyway, whatever his damn um, project is called, uh, compared with Branson's project, um, he's got bigger windows, but Branson's got more windows. Well, I've heard the joke, you know, what can you see out of his bloody windows? If they're anything like Virgin trains, you ain't going to see very much anyway. And what are you going to see? Uh, the idea that you, you know, going to see loads of stars and galaxies, you're going to see a bit of black, you'll see the Earth. Uh, in, in terms of the, the curvature of the earth, but to spend one billion pounds uh, uh, on that strikes me, as I said, as, as perverse. I know rich people do. I know we all like a party, uh, but there is such a thing, I think, as, um, um, how should you put it, just waste, uh, you know, the using up of um, human potential uh, for no discernible, useful uh, effect. Nonetheless, apparently he's got 700 people who've paid deposits uh, waiting uh, for a, a trip. Um, they've each committed themselves to pay £180,000 uh, uh, for the uh, uh, privilege. Um, of course, when it comes to who's got money uh, to burn, uh, it's Bezos. He's the world's richest uh, human being. Uh, his wealth is purportedly uh, estimated to be 152 billion pounds. Uh, I did check, by the way, pounds as opposed to uh, dollars. That's how it's at least reported in the British uh, press, where uh, Sir, Sir Richard is a mere minnow uh, at uh, 4.2 billion uh, uh, pounds. Okay, on to more serious uh, subjects. We have the Americans switching off the lights at uh, Bagram uh, Air Base and uh, scuttling out uh, in its own way, uh, just as humiliating, uh, although it doesn't make as good TV as uh, them scuttling out of Saigon, um, you know, on the um, skids of their helicopters from the American uh, embassy when the city fell to the National Liberation Front. I can remember it like it was uh, yesterday. Uh, but this is another imperial humiliation uh, for the uh, United uh, States. Remember, uh, the United States with its allies went in uh, to Afghanistan, really um, in a situation of where uh, the United States, you know, had a legitimacy in arguing that there was only one superpower. Uh, the Soviet Union had collapsed, uh, the Soviet Union broke up, uh, Russia and uh, the former republics in general uh, were spiraling down into crisis and poverty. Uh, meanwhile, uh, there was the world for the United States to remake and you had um, uh, you know, uh, literature um, such as uh, Francis Fukuyama and uh, the end of history, the project for the new American century, the idea that the Americans would remake the world uh, in its own image and um, uh, the coming to power of the Taliban and crucially, of course, the Al-Qaeda attacks on America, uh, both in terms of the Pentagon, but above all, 
in terms of the Twin Towers in, in New York provided uh, the project for a new American century and uh, their co-thinkers with the opportunity that they'd been waiting for. And if you read their literature um, of the time, some of these guys, by the way, were um, ex-leftists and um, um, you know, gave, gave their um, thinking uh, quite an expansive, um, 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 how should we put it, character. So that, you know, the basic project wasn't just to uh, reshape one small country, Afghanistan, uh, it was to reshape uh, the entire uh, Middle East and to, as I say, transform it um, in the image, but also, of course, in, in as a dependent image um, of uh, the United States. And this is what's come of it. Uh, so uh, we've had NATO uh, troops there and American troops, crucially, uh, for 20 years, bombing away, um, droning away, um, special forces, conventional forces, and this is what's happened. Um, whatever the exact figure happens to be, and it wouldn't surprise me that the Taliban control 85% of the territory um, um, of Afghanistan, that'll be the countryside, um, the Americans still scuttled out. And again, who knows, uh, but um, you know, when you read journalists and politicians saying that Kabul will fall to the Taliban within six months, um, I'm not going to argue uh, against that. That seems more than feasible uh, uh, to me. So all the attempt at uh, nation building, at um, developing Afghanistan has come to naught. And I certainly remember uh, the stupidity of the British media uh, at the time, you know, when you had uh, uh, British uh, troops patrolling Helmand province and, uh, you know, boasting that they, because of their colonial history, knew better and they know how to handle natives and all the rest of it. And then uh, were very quickly confined to um, hunkering down, um, you know, in forts. <laughs> they couldn't patrol in any meaningful uh, uh, way without risking being blown up or shot. Um, that's basically what happened. So yeah, the Americans, of course, dominated the air and could uh, take out individual Taliban leaders um, and uh, wreak devastation um, on um, villages and wedding parties and uh, all the rest of, rest of it. But in terms of winning hearts and minds, in terms of putting to place putting in place meaningful, viable structures, uh, it's been a complete failure, an abject uh, uh, failure. Let's just um, think about Afghan, Af Afghanistani history. I'm not going to go back to Alexander the Great and uh, his marriage to Roxana and uh, all of that sort of stuff. We can simply um, say that in terms of Afghanistan's modern history, uh, it really acted as a buffer state uh, between the expanding Russian uh, empire to the north uh, that was moving into um, 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 Asia um, and the British empire of um, India, the, in, the, the Indian Raj. Um, 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 uh, and although there's all these stories of, um, you know, British armies uh, coming to grief in uh, Afghanistan, the reality was uh, that you didn't have an independent state. What you had is a state that balanced 
uh, between the British Empire on the one side and uh, the Russian Empire uh, on the other. And um, that actually continued um, after the October uh, Revolution, um, that you still had the British Empire uh, in the south, and then you had Soviet power uh, in the north. And certainly uh, when it came to the Cold War uh, after uh, World War II, uh, what you had in Afghanistan is a sort of attempt to maintain some sort of balance between the United States, Britain had gone, uh, the British Empire was over, not least in India, 1947 and all that, but a, a, a balance in Afghanistan between the new a global hegemon, the United States and the Soviet Union, its northern neighbor um, on the other. So in terms of, you know, um, the education of doctors, in terms of military equipment, uh, road building, uh, there was always an attempt to get uh, from both sides. And certainly if you take the monarchy, it had a sort of um, modernizing uh, mission. Uh, I'm told, I've never been to Kabul uh, myself, I've never been to Afghanistan, but I'm told by, you know, quite a wide uh, variety of friends who did travel to um, Afghanistan, you know, on their um, route to the east, um, you know, that was very common in the 1960s and the 1970s, is that Kabul, um, you know, appeared to them uh, to be a, how should you put it, a, a westernizer. I don't want to push that too much, but I mean, women didn't go round in the veil. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, what we were dealing with uh, isn't something exotic, something extraordinary. Um, we know, of course, uh, that um, uh, that policy of maintaining some sort of balance between the United States and the, the Soviet Union continued with the overthrow of the monarchy. I think that was 1973. Uh, and it changed, though, of course, uh, in the April Revolution of 1978. Now, there's all sorts of arguments, uh, you know, about the um, uh, April Revolution. You know, was it uh, the work of the KGB? I personally very much doubt it. Um, uh, because what we saw there is uh, um, a situation of where um, you had the overthrow of the old regime and the coming to power, not of the military. It's certainly true uh, that the overthrow of the old regime took the form of a military uprising. And it took the form of military uprising um, centered on um, you know, particularly the Air Force, um, but also the officer corps. Um, a lot of them would have got training um, in the Soviet Union. But what is worthwhile noting is that they were directed by a civilian party, that this wasn't a simple military coup. Uh, the government that came into uh, being wasn't stuffed with uh, generals or colonels. Uh, it consisted of civilians who were members of the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, um, basically the um, official Communist Party of Afghanistan. And of course, uh, this party, as anyone with any sort of knowledge of Afghanistan will know, 
uh, was deeply divided from the beginning. Um, some people explain it in ethnic terms. I, I think there's um, a political explanation uh, uh, to it. You've got a more moderate wing, uh, which was the Parcham uh, wing, uh, which from my memory means flag. I think that's the flag faction. Um, I'm right, Stan is telling me. Um, and this was led by a guy called Babrak Kamal. And on the other side, there was the um, Calc wing, which means masses. They had their own papers with those names. I've read <laughs> uh, mm. both um, um, of them. Um, and it was that wing uh, that took the lead in the um, uprising, in the overthrow. Uh, of the old regime in uh, April. And that uprising was directed by a guy called Hassi Fuller Amin. Hafi Zula, thank you, Stanley. Hafi uh, Zula Amin. And the first prime minister was also of that faction, although um, the other faction was represented in the government, a guy called Taraki. Um, anyway, the long and the short of it was uh, is that Taraki ended up being um, smothered. He was uh, killed um, in an internal coup. Um, we had um, the sending of um, Babrak Kamal as the ambassador, I think, to Moscow or Prague or somewhere equivalent uh, to that. But the crucial question, the crucial question here is that um, even before uh, the um, overthrow uh, of the old regime, uh, the United States had its eyes on uh, Afghanistan to cause trouble. And certainly once the April Revolution happened, uh, the United States uh, acted um, in order to arm uh, the counter-revolution. Uh, and it acted not only as the United States, it acted through... Uh, um, Pakistan through the ISI, the Pakistani Secret Service. It also acted through Saudi Arabia. And here's the irony, of course, uh, that uh, what happened was that not only did they arm uh, these so-called uh, Mujahideen uh, fighters, they also sent in volunteers. And the volunteers included amongst their ranks, of course, um, what became Al-Qaeda and um, bin Laden. Uh, he was a product of this uh, CIA American operation uh, to overthrow uh, this government. Now, I'm sure uh, the government of Taraki and Amin uh, handled things in a um, um, ham-fisted fashion, uh, but we need to understand that its project uh, was to preside over a social transformation. Uh, and in that sense, it wasn't any different uh, to the project of the French Revolution of 1789. It wasn't any different in that sense to the project of uh, Cromwell and the parliamentarians uh, or uh, the Glorious Revolution and William of Orange or other such uh, bourgeois uh, revolutions and, and such revolutions inevitably, and I think that the word uh, isn't misused, inevitably provoke counter-revolution. Uh, the difference was that this counter-revolution uh, was not armed with um, 19th century flintlocks. 
or blunderbusses or whatever. Uh, uh, this time round, they were armed with Stinger missiles uh, supplied by uh, the Americans. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the inability um, of uh, the local regime to defeat this counter-revolution shouldn't be, um, you know, shouldn't be, we shouldn't find it surprising. Maybe I find it surprising uh, that when um, the Soviet army intervened, it couldn't overcome uh, that opposition. Uh, but nonetheless, we need to understand that this opposition was now backed uh, not only by local powers, such as Pakistan, uh, regional powers such as Saudi Arabia, but crucially uh, the United States. And it also needs to be emphasized uh, that the Soviet Union did not intervene um, in order to um, overthrow some democratic uh, uh, government, some pro-Western government. The regime that it overthrew uh, was that of um, um, Amin, uh, the leader of the um, Kalk. Uh, a faction. And it, it seemed to believe that it was his fault that if you got rid of Amin and you put in Babrak Kamal, uh, the counter-revolution in the countryside would disappear. You make concessions uh, to mullahs, you make concession to land uh, uh, owners, uh, you retreat uh, when it comes to the social program vis-a-vis, -vis, for example, um, the education of girls you retreat and uh, the counter-revolution disappears. Well, of course, that was a fundamental mistake because the United States uh, was fighting in order to uh, make Afghanistan, Amer uh, um, uh, the Soviet Union's Afghanistan. I mean, that, that really was uh, the project. Okay, um, so it succeeded uh, in that. And what was remarkable, I think, is that uh, the regime in Kabul, the PDPA regime in Kabul, outlasted the collapse of the Soviet Union. So the Soviet Union collapses in 1991 and Kabul finally falls to the Mujahideen in 1992. And that was under a guy, um, Najibullah. Uh, he was uh, hung um, uh, by the Mujahideen. And of course, when the Mujahideen came to power, it wasn't peace, it wasn't uh, all uh, uh, niceness. Uh, they then proceeded to uh, fight each other and wreck uh, the city. And it was those circumstances uh, that really laid the groundwork uh, for the Taliban to come in. The Taliban fundamentally, or at least were, I don't know about now, fundamentally an arm of uh, the Pakistani state, the Pakistani secret service. Uh, these were people who uh, fled uh, into Pakistan and were uh, educated in the madrasas um, um, of um, basically um, sort of Saudi type um, um, Islam. Um, this is what the Taliban were in terms of their origins. Um, anyway, uh, we all know the rest of the history, you know, 9-11, the overthrow uh, of the Taliban, and then the failure of the United, the United States. Just a couple of other points I think are just worthwhile throwing in uh, before moving on, and that is to try to remember the mindset uh, that existed uh, in these times. First of all, in terms of popular culture, 
the Mujahideen were portrayed as heroes. And you can see that not only in um, Hollywood films, uh, but also British TV uh, series. Often in British TV, uh, the leaders of the Mujahideen turn out to be Oxbridge educated and uh, ha having gone to uh, either Eton or Harrow. Uh, they've all got bourgeois British uh, accent sort of type idea. In America, likewise, these, these people are um, liberators, they're freedom uh, fighters. There's no concept uh, of them being feudalists, no, no, no concept of them being opposed uh, to democracy, uh, let alone uh, women's rights, um, you know. Uh, so let's think about the left under those circumstances. I can never forget uh, that throughout this whole period, the Alliance for Workers' Liberty, the you know, the social imperialist alliance for workers' liberty supported the Mujahideen as brave guerrilla fighters. Um, remember, this is before they discovered Islamo-fascism. So nowadays, um, the equivalent politics uh, is condemned by them as being um, just an Islamic version of fascism. So back then, uh, these people again were freedom fighters. And it was only, I think, in the last gasps of the PDPA, PD, I'll say the whole bloody thing. Uh, uh, <laughs> PDPA. PDPA mm. regime uh, did the AWL shift and say that they supported the city versus the countryside. Well, to me, uh, whatever the fault of the city uh, was, whatever the limitations of the PDPA uh, government were, uh, we should have been supporting the city against the countryside. We were supporting uh, modernity uh, against reaction. That was our uh, position. And I think that should have been a, a basic uh, uh, position. Um, and certainly not lining up uh, with reaction and international uh, imperialism. Remember, this is the same group uh, that published, uh, just, be, just as the Americans were about to invade um, Iraq, uh, they published um, Kortsky's, uh, Karl Kortsky's uh, infamous uh, pamphlet, Ultra Imperialism, which he published on the eve of uh, World War I, saying that inter-imperialist contradictions are a thing of the past and uh, they won't go to war uh, with each other because you've got this thing, ultra imperialism. And that was basically the thesis of the AWL. And they printed this uh, pamphlet on the basis, well, Kortsky was uh, uh, wrong, um, but he was right. He was wrong about the timing, but his fundamental thesis was right that you've got US hegemony and that means peace. Well, tell that to the people of Vietnam, tell that to the people of Iraq, tell that to the people of Syria, tell that to the people of Libya, and one can carry on down the list of the counter-revolutionary horrors and crimes uh, committed by uh, US uh, imperialism. But also, let's also think about another organization, and I'll finish with this. And this is a comrade writing in socialist worker, Helen Salmon, uh, a, a socialist worker, full-timer. Um, and she wrote uh, about when the Taliban came into Kabul and imposed um, the full veil um, on women. And she celebrated that. She said that this is a good thing. And it's a good thing that the Taliban imposed this, uh, otherwise, uh, women would have been raped. Uh, I just think that, again, that needs remembering. Uh, 
um, you know, for the left to celebrate such a retrogressive uh, act in such a horrible, uh, apologetic way, um, as if, you know, women who aren't wearing the veil uh, almost deserve uh, to be uh, raped. That's the message I took from it. Okay. Just lastly, I suppose, on the whole question of Afghanistan, uh, at the time of the invasion, a lot of the left were obsessed with um, oil pipelines, oil deposits, mineral deposits, and apparently that's why the United States was there. Uh, I didn't buy it at the time. I'm sure there's a bit of oil there. There's minerals there. Yes, yes, yes. I readily accept that. But the reason the United States went in was 9-11 and its bigger project um, of reshaping uh, the Middle East that just came apart at the seams. Um, it didn't go in there um, in order to exploit oil um, or to obtain uh, minerals. Minerals, To me, that's um, thinking uh, of a previous form of imperialism. It might have been appropriate to Russia versus Britain or Britain versus Germany, uh, but not uh, um, in the present uh, uh, period. Okay, let's move on. And this is coming towards the end. And it's a sort of footnote on Batley and Spa. I've already mentioned uh, the by-election. Um, and uh, my starting point here is a, uh, an article by Charlie Kimber. Charlie Kimber is the editor of Socialist Worker and he's the joint national secretary along with Amy, what's her name? Amy, I can't remember her name. Anyway, he's the joint secretary um, of um, the SWP and he's writing about this uh, uh, by-election. Now, why did uh, the Labour Party uh, lose Muslim votes? Charlie asks the question and then comes up with, well, there was this senior Labour source uh, that was being interviewed uh, by uh, the Mail on Sunday, by the editor, I think, of the Mail on Sunday, who came out with this phrase, we are hemorrhaging support from Muslims because of what Keir is doing around the anti-Semitism uh, question. I mean, when I read that, I sort of shrugged my shoulders and go, well, yeah, I, it's a reasonable description of what's going on. Um, you know, there was George Galloway at the time in terms of the opinion poll. Uh, I think there was only one published, only one published that I can think of before the actual, um, you know, electorate itself spoke. And that put George Galloway on 6%. Well, what we have is Charlie Kimber explaining um, George Galloway's vote here, the hemorrhaging of support um, in a complete ask by, you know, ask by face uh, uh, fashion. Uh, in other words, you know, after the Labour Party is hemorrhaging support, uh, this person is interviewed uh, by the Mail on Sunday, and that itself becomes the cause of uh, the Labour Party hemorrhaging uh, support. Fact of the matter is, if you look at the uh, campaign, what you had is uh, a, a, quite a famous Labour Party leaflet with Modi and uh, Johnson shaking hands with uh, uh, Baroness um, Varsi being quoted about the Tories being... Um, Islamophobic and uh, all the rest of it and asking the question, do you want 
uh, a Tory MP, i.e. appealing to the Muslim population um, on the basis of what could be called, but I, I don't buy that one, the Socialist Party does on the basis of um, communalism. Um, either way, uh, what is remarkable uh, about uh, Charlie's uh, article is that uh, he does not mention the name George Galloway. He does not mention the name Workers' Party uh, of Britain. I think that's quite a remarkable uh, achievement when covering such a by-election. I mean, we sort of know why, don't we? Uh, because according to SWP, at least internal mythology that they actually put out there, um, um, it was George Galloway in respect uh, that witch-hunted the poor SWP led by uh, John Rees. Do you remember that? I mean, it was just absolute a lie. Well, what happened with respect is that uh, um, um, John Rees found himself in a position of where these uh, Muslim politicians uh, in various parts of uh, Britain didn't roll over and elect him as their chosen candidate. Uh, they preferred to promote themselves. Who can blame them? He, 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 his attitude was completely condescending. He thought these people were children. The reality was that George Galloway understood uh, the politics uh, that were involved. John Rees didn't, and therefore looked for his opportunity to flounce out all the time claiming that they were being witch-hunted. Uh, it's a, a lie from the beginning to the end. But here's an organization that is so guilty uh, of its past, uh, it cannot mention the name George Galloway because it will remind um, the, its old <coughs> members and maybe prompt its new members to look up the history of George Galloway and the SWP and respect and how the SWP uh, voted down its own principles, free movement of people, the right of a woman to choose whether or not to have an abortion, socialism. Uh, the SWP voted against that, republicanism. Apparently that would, put, this, is, this is an SWP speaker at Respect Conference. Apparently if you hold to republicanism, it will put off royalist voters. Well, I'm, I'm sure that's right. I'm sure that's right. But what's the point of being a socialist? you know, on the basis, well, you just hold up a mirror uh, to the electorate. Anyway, the SWP exposed itself of being totally 100% opportunist. And I do think that in the form of this uh, significant absence in uh, Charlie uh, Kimber's article, you can see that haunting uh, their brains still. To me, the candidate who came third, not with 6%, uh, of the vote, but with over 20% uh, of the vote. To me, uh, as it is with the weekly worker, this is the big story. It's not that uh, Keir Starmer hangs on by a couple of hundred votes. It, it's the Workers' Party and the individual role of uh, George Galloway and the question of um, um, the alienation uh, of the Muslim Labour voters from the Labour Party in the midst of this fake uh, um, anti-Zionism uh, equals anti-Semitism witch hunt that is being conducted. Uh, because a lot of these uh, uh, voters will consider themselves uh, to be anti-Israel. 
And what we're talking about here is the Zionist uh, state of Israel uh, that's based on Jewish exclusivity. Um, uh, and yeah, they identify uh, quite rightly uh, with those that are being witch hunted and do not take kindly uh, to the Hashibudit, um, uh, to the pat formulas uh, that come from the labor leadership about a two state um, solution and everyone being reasonable and what a tragedy uh, things, things are. Uh, you can understand why they're attracted uh, to George Galloway's intransigent uh, position um, on this question. I don't know what his exact line is on one state, regional revolution, two states or whatever. He sides with the Palestinians and that's the message it got across. Likewise, uh, over the question of Kashmir and uh, opposition uh, to Modi's um, Hindu chauvinist uh, uh, party. Okay, so as I said, I, I thought that was quite a remarkable um, achievement on behalf of the Socialist Workers' Party, not to mention um, the 20% and who they voted for. That's <laughs> quite, quite surreal. Lastly, um, thought I would um, just bung it in. Um, population matters. I don't know if anyone's heard of population matters, but its, um, it's board is stuffed full of um, very worthy individuals. Paul Eilick comes to mind. People who remember the 1960s might recall him. I think he was the author, I can't remember the exact date, but the, the book was The Population Bomb. But also other people like Attenborough, uh, on its um, board, and so is uh, Jane Goodall. Jane Goodall is, uh, to me, a remarkable, remarkable woman who went out uh, to Africa to study the chimpanzees and came back with startling conclusions that contradicted all uh, the scientists uh, uh, who'd simply studied chimpanzees in the laboratory or in zoos. She studied them in their natural conditions and came back with stories of solidarity, of politics, of uh, rivalry, of sexual alliances. And um, basically her work is now accepted. Anyway, my main point here isn't about her wonderful work with uh, chimpanzees, obviously. It's about the idea uh, that there are too many of us. And that if it wasn't for too many of us, the chimpanzees would be safe. But if it wasn't for us, we wouldn't be having, you know, this heat, heat dome in, um, uh, British Columbia, that we wouldn't be having these uh, uh, fires out there in California, we wouldn't be threatened with rising sea levels. So uh, they've issued an award to who? Um, Harry and Meghan Windsor. Um, <laughs> yes, exactly. Why? Because they pledged to limit uh, their family to two. And this deserves a special award. Well, again, I'm reminded of um, uh, Harry Windsor flying into a uh, conference in, um, in Italy, an exclusive um, um, holiday uh, village in order to speak to a, um, a gathering of the rich and the powerful and how they were going to pledge to plant trees. And of course, he flies in on a, a private aircraft is put up in an exclusive uh, resort with your own individual swimming pool, and I'm not joking, and flies out with the same 
uh, uh, method. Now, you know, in that sense, what I'm conjuring up is precisely the likes of um, Richard Branson and, and Vsauce, that it's not about um, having one child, two children, three children or whatever. But what lies behind this, of course, is an agenda. Uh, I do believe that capitalism, capitalist states will try to do something, are trying to do something about climate change. I, I, I don't buy into the thesis that uh, capitalism cannot do anything about global warming. It has to do something about it in the same way they had to do something. Even Trump, even, you know, even Boris Johnson had to do something about COVID-19. Uh, but at the same time, capitalism has got this logic uh, that uh, uh, goes against the doing of something that's effective. It's got this logic of accumulation for the sake of accumulation uh, uh, to it not just this crazy um, display of wealth, but the underlying logic of accumulation for accumulation production, the sake of accumulation. Anyway, my, the point I'm trying to get to is that as well as planting trees in the most um, ecologically uh, damaging way, as I'm sure they're already doing, I know that that's what they're doing, going over to electric cars as if that's gonna fundamentally uh, change things, and other such solutions, there's a very good chance of them uh, targeting uh, people in the so-called third world as being the problem as opposed to capitalism, uh, that it's people in Nigeria or Chad or Ethiopia or Bangladesh that are the problem because they're not having just two children, uh, they're irresponsible and having three, four or five uh, children. Um, in my view, uh, what we need to understand, and I'll finish with this, is that all societies have their own um, population laws. And I think the fastest growing population in the world, I've already mentioned it, is Afghanistan. And uh, that's in spite of war, horror, and all the rest of it. How do I explain that? Is it because women aren't being educated? No, I explain it to do with the social structure uh, that exists in Afghanistan and peasant agriculture and uh, the need for peasants uh, to have a labor force and crucially uh, to have boys. Boys bring in labor uh, to the family, girls take labor out uh, of uh, the family. Anyway, uh, yes, uh, the danger of um, weaponizing population numbers and population growth and blaming the poorest uh, and the most vulnerable people uh, on the planet, as opposed to dealing with, well, of course, capitalism can't deal with it. And that's the logic of capitalism uh, itself, that whatever they do in terms of trees and cities and rewilding, they're not going to overthrow uh, the productivist logic of capitalism. That is a task of the working class. And that is the only realistic reliable way uh, that humanity has uh, to overcome you know the crisis that we're seeing um, signs of week by week um, month by month that's it thanks very much <laughs>